Well, I woke up this morning and I had the voice of the cookie monster. So this message is being brought to you by Advil, cold and sinus this morning. And yet mostly God's Holy Spirit. Um, a couple weeks back, we began a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at the Beatitudes as this series begins. And, and just each week, I want us to, to really hear what Jesus is emphasizing. How a couple weeks back, Jesus is basically saying on the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to follow in my footsteps, here is what I live like. Here is what I look like. And now by default, here is what I want you to, to live as you learn what it means to, to truly be my follower. And we've seen how each beatitude begins with this word of you are blessed if. And that word blessed is a word which means happy. It can mean happy. It also means that of all the people in the world, if you are this, you are the most to be envied. It's a word... I would say that the closest thing in our modern day slang is something like congratulations if this is you. And yet the main meaning of this word blessed is that regardless of how this world operates, regardless of what this world thinks is a person who is blessed, this is what you are in the eyes of the Father Jesus is saying. And I think that this is such a foreign concept even to we ourselves all of these years later. And that's because we can hear it in our, in our language. It seems like the only time that we use the word, or, or rather the phrase, that I am so blessed, is if we have just got a promotion at work, and it's like, I just got a promotion, I am so blessed, right? Or you go to the doctor's office, and you have the results of a biopsy, and you are, and after all, you do not have cancer. And what do we say? I am so blessed. I do not have cancer. We're just about to go on a three-week vacation, maybe. And I'm going off to um, Europe for, for three weeks. Oh my goodness. We are so, what, blessed. My son just got engaged. We as a family are so, you know, we are blessed family. It just goes on and on. It seems like that word blessed is a word that we only reserve for the very rarest of exciting things that happen in our lives. And yet the remarkable thing about Jesus though, is that Jesus has a much different concept and premise in mind when he defines just who exactly has it really most greatest of all in this world. And we began a couple of weeks back as Jesus had said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we had seen exactly what that meant. And this morning, he says in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn. For all of those who mourn in my name are going to be comforted, Jesus says. It's a word which means, of course, to lament. This word in the original language in the Greek means that you are grieving over something that has come to an end in your life. It means that you have a sorrow in your heart that is so devastating that it simply cannot be ignored or concealed or just swept underneath the rug. And yet, 
really the greatest way to understand what Jesus is describing here is that when we mourn in this way that he's referring to, that it's something where we feel absolutely miserable every minute of the day. This is a serious, serious thing that we might be going through. It's when everything feels normal in our lives. Everything feels good and ordinary. And then from out of nowhere, we get that call at 1.19 in the morning. Or that person walks through the door and say that we've got to talk. Or maybe we are watching something on our televisions and, and all of a sudden we're just cold cocked with this breaking news story that's, that's on every single one of the news outlets. And then all of a sudden, 10 seconds later, our bodies turn to ice. We feel sick in our stomachs as we hear people around us gasping out loud and lapsing into hysteria. Where our lives are all of a sudden interrupted and it feels as if our lives have now become this, this, this very strange otherworldly nightmare as life unfolds before our very eyes. When the only word in our entire vocabulary becomes, what? And we just keep saying that word over and over again. What is going on? And yet, as Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Mourning is a season which will come to us many times in this life. And it's going to come for us whether we are ready for it to come or whether we are not ready for that to come. There are people in this room of all kinds of ages who, how that looked like for you, was the death of a husband. It was the death of a wife who you had been with for 40, 50, 60 years. Maybe it was the death of a child for a lot of people in this world. And yet what we need to understand about this word mourn is that it's not strictly limited to a funeral service in our lives. But many times what we might need to mourn is rejection. We have been out of a job for a very long time and we put everything that we have in that job and it looks like we're just about to get that job, but it goes to somebody else. Maybe it is that, that woman who has spent year after year of her life being the only single person in her circle of friends and she just feels so alone and so rejected in this world. Maybe for you it is mourning a loss of a friendship that you had for a very, very long time. It is a death of that friendship that has now come to an end. Or maybe what you are mourning is as you look at this world and you just see all of the violence, all of the corruption, all of the vice that is running rampant in this world getting worse on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. And you just reach a point where, where you just can't watch the news anymore because it's just relentless onslaught of stuff like this. And your heart is just broken by what you're seeing unfolding in your world. And you just say, God, how much longer is this going to go on? Or maybe what, what will get our attention in a morning way collectively is a tragedy. I'm wondering if, if anybody here can remember the day when the Challenger exploded. It was 1986, if I recall. I, was, I remember it vaguely, but I was too young to really have experienced it the way that I'm sure all of you experienced it. But any time that I've watched that clip, 
And you see that shuttle lift off and, and everybody's just so happy and so excited. And yet then soon, really before everybody's eyes, live on television, you see that shuttle explode into a scorpion cloud in the air. And you're watching this and you realize, oh my gosh, those people just blew up. And then the camera zooms. And for me, what the saddest part is of this entire thing is it, it had a mother and father of one of those famous astronauts. Krista McAlfee's parents are, are just standing there looking at it, realizing that our daughter was just blown up in the sky. This is something that, that absolutely caused us as a country to collectively mourn together because of just how heart, heartbreaking it really was. And yet I believe that a major part of what Jesus is really driving home here is even though it applies to, to really any way that we might possibly mourn, I believe Jesus also is looking for people in his kingdom which is to come who when they come to a knowledge of what they have done as we see in acts chapter 2 jesus was here but you crucified jesus and their response is oh my god what have we done jesus says in luke's version of the sermon on the mount he says blessed are you who weep right now because a time is coming when you are going to laugh and likewise he says really the antithesis of that in verse 25 as he goes on and he says woe to you who laugh right now and we can read between those lines and say woe is you who are always laughing who are always smiling about something 24 7 because you are going to mourn and to weep and to wail or james says it like this he says draw near to god and and he will draw near to you but notice how he says is is at least one way that we draw near to god he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy then become gloom. Now, it's important for us to understand what the context of this is. He's not saying you, you have to always be miserable all the time. But rather, he is writing to a group of Christians who it's been a very long time since they have really thought about their own sins. It's been a long time since they have cried their own hearts out about what they did that nailed Jesus to the cross. He said that there is a time necessary and sufficient for us to weep our hearts out about our own sin that we are ensnared with. I mean, there are just so many things in this world and in this life that can just break, ache, and, and just completely shatter our hearts in a million pieces. And yet Jesus says, Blessed are all of you who take this pain and who mourn with that pain, because you will be comforted. But Jesus just means women there, right? As he says that. He's just referring to women and girls. As he says, Blessed are you who mourn, isn't he? Because after all, if you are a man, you cannot be seen, you know, tearing up, crying about something, mourning. Because if you are seen mourning and you are a man, well, that means that you're just not a real man, right? 
At least that is a perception of manhood in this culture, as I've experienced it at least. I knew this kid growing up who he went to a funeral of his grandfather and, and he began crying at his grandfather's funeral. And, and his dad, you know, he had called him to task about that. He said, cut that out. And so just bite your lip and just don't cry because we got to be men about this, right? And so that is a perception in this world. And yet, I am given a lot of insight about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7, Ecclesiastes, of course, is the book that King Solomon writes, we believe, in the very last years of his life. Solomon, we know, has had great wealth and great power in this world, reigned 40 years on the throne. I mean, this is the king who all other kings bow down before and who came to in pursuit of counsel and for wisdom. This is the, the king of kings of the Old Testament. Solomon had been wiser than, than anybody else on the face of the earth. He, he had composed over a thousand songs, spoke over 3,000 proverbs. I mean, just a man of great, just incredible, a man of pleasure. He had over a thousand wives and concubines. And what this means is, is that at any moment in the day, if he wanted a princess in his bed, that is exactly what would happen for Solomon at any point that he wanted it. And we look at a guy like Solomon, and we think here's a guy who truly experienced everything that this world had to offer in its fullest nth degree. This is a guy who had it all. And yet, what is remarkable about the book of Ecclesiastes, though, is that this king who had all of this power and all of this fame and all of this great pleasure at his disposal, he's at the point in his life now where he's looking at all of this stuff that he has accumulated. He looks at his empire, as it were, and all he sees is an empire of dirt. And in this book of Ecclesiastes, all of these things that, that he possesses, that, that so many people to this day in our American world would absolutely kill to have for themselves. He looks at these things and he says, it's just rubbish. It's futility. Vanities of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity, he says. All is futility. And in chapter 7, what he says to us, it seems very strange to our ears. Where he says in chapter 7, starting at verse 1, that a good name is better than a good ointment. It is a reference to really the Jewish people coming out of slavery all those years. It is the, the embodiment of having good and plenty. And yet notice what he says after this. He says that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. He says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. But then, really, this is where it starts getting weird for us. Where he says, sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart still may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fool is in the house of great pleasure. Sorrow is better than laughter. I mean, what do we do with that? 
As I read this, what, what comes over my mind is that what I can learn from Solomon here about in terms of mourning is that as we look at this world, there's so much in our world that calls happiness. And what the world calls happiness so, so often is great sadness in the eyes of God. Because so much happiness in the world is rooted in the flesh and in this world rather than in God and in things that breathe life into our souls and into our lives. I went to school with a lot of people who, who looked for all of their, their happiness in a bottle. There's many people who I've encountered who look for their happiness in a needle, crystal meth, marijuana, whatever it might be, what, whatever one becomes addicted to and becomes enslaved to. It might be a pornography addiction. I mean, money, I mean, stuff and possessions, what, whatever it might be that we might struggle with. It becomes so much larger than we had ever anticipated. And now it is something that is controlling us and that has conquered us and is just about to even vanquish us. And I look at so much that this world calls happiness and I just think, how sad is this? How sad is it to, to look for, for life and all of these momentary things that might make us feel very good for about 90 seconds, for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, but then it quickly wears off. <clears throat> I mean, there's just so much in this world that it calls happy that is so artificial and superficial. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's good to be happy. There's nobody who, who loves to, to laugh and to act silly more than me. Just ask my wife. At times, I might even be, a, you know, I might go, you know, far away in that, more than I should. Yet sometimes happiness and laughter might be all that we might be seeking for for a while. Sometimes we gluttonously feast at the table of laughter and of joy above anything else. And we might forget that while there is a season for, for, for um, laughter and for dancing, and what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes is that there's also a time and a season and a place for us to mourn and to weep until we have no more strength with which to weep. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, but again, what is a deterrent many times for, for a lot of people in this world is that, well, I, that's a stumbling block for me because after all, I'm a man. If I mourn, that is not very mochismo. That is not very manly. I cannot be seen as weak or as vulnerable or as inferior. And so for a lot of people, a lot of people walk away from Jesus because they cannot be ever in a state where they are going to cry or mourn. And yet I think far too often, even more than that, is that there are a lot of Christians who have a misconception about what the Christian life is. Who think that the Christian life is nothing but endless smiling and happiness 24-7 around the clock. Who think that the only time that I can ever be blessed is if something really remarkable happens in my life in an extraordinary fashion. And yet Jesus says this is what it means to be a blessed person. 
And the family secret that we learn and that King Solomon learns over and over and over again in mourning and in being left empty by this world is that as, as excruciating as it is to us, sorrow is, is in fact better than laughter and, and, and hilarity is. And as a minister, I have discovered, you know, I, I'm discovering how true this is on a daily basis. As Walter knows as well, when you are a minister, people come to you with their deepest, darkest secrets. And as an empathizer, I, every time that I walk with other people in their darkest pain, I mean, it, it will break and it will ravage your very heart. As a person who has experienced unspeakable adversity in my life, unspeakable depression and darkness and loneliness in my life, even after experiencing all of those things, whenever I feel lonely or sad in these ways, there is this very strange, unusual sense that this is also a very beautiful thing. Because when I hand over all of this pain and suffering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to the influence and to the working of God's Holy Spirit, God and the great potter is molding me into something unspeakably beautiful that I was not before I was going through these things. And the good news is that even though there is a sadness to so much happiness in the world around us, there is a a very profound happiness to our sadness so often. Now, oftentimes when our sorrow comes to us, as people, oftentimes we try to get as far away from that pain as we possibly can. We say, God, please bring this to an end just as soon as it's begun. And yet the thing about Jesus is that Jesus does not sprint away from the pain and from the weeping and from the mourning. Jesus sprints to it. Jesus moves as close in. He embraces that pain and suffering with every fiber of his existence. We remember Jesus mourning over a friend that he had lost. He's standing there at the foot of his grave and Scripture says that his heart is so broken by it that, that he is literally weeping out loud. That's what that means in the original language. This is uncomfortable wailing to be around. Jesus is weeping to such an extent that, that there are, are others there at the funeral who are saying, see how much he loved Lazarus. A short time later, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And he reaches the very pinnacle of that hill and he begins weeping over just how stubborn and sinful Jerusalem was. We can hear, I mean, we can see the tears in Jesus' eyes as he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those who were sent to her, how often I wanted you to gather you together in my arms. Like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you guys are just not willing. Jesus is just about to go to the cross to die for their sins as well as for ours, but, but he was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And so as Jesus dismounts off of that donkey, he, he, 
you know, he weeps because he knows that they want a political Messiah. They want a, a governmental Jesus. Is the American church listening to this? He was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And so Jesus is weeping over their, their um, cold hearts. We see Jesus mourning in Gethsemane where he's just about to purchase our redemption and he knows everything coming ahead and the apostles are, are avoiding it all. They are fast asleep in their sorrow. And yet Jesus is offering up loud prayers and lamentation to the one who was able to save him, but who he knew was not going to deliver him from the cross. And the example of Jesus reminds me so much of the Washington Irving quote where, where he says that there is a sacredness in tears. They are not the mark of weakness as many people think that they are, but actually they are the mark of great power. Tears speak more eloquently than even 10,000 of tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming grief and of deep contrition, and they are the measure of unspeakable Love. This is what we see in the example of Jesus. And I remember many years ago, I was really in a season of mourning once. This was the darkest time of my life by far. One that threatened my, my actual life. And I'll never forget how there was a person who came up to me and who said, smile. Just smile. Pretend like you really are a Christian, David. It's a good thing that I didn't have a pool cue in my hand because I would have been tempted to break that sucker off their head. Because again, the Christian life is so often portrayed like this. Everything's perfect in our world. Our lives are like this musical. It's like singing in the rain and we're just swinging around on light poles and everything is just so perfect and euphoric in our lives. And again, don't get me wrong. We need to be smiling as we praise God. And yet, it, if we think that this is what we have to look like 24-7, this is not at all what Jesus has in mind. Jesus Christ was never once referred to as the man of laughter or as the man of happiness, but, but Jesus is known to us as the man of sorrows as a result of what he had gone through. And we were here for, for one month at this very church in the very spot where I'm standing. And our, and our, our dear sister, whose name is Nadine, she had... I broke the news to everybody that, that I've got cancer. And I saw every single person in this auditorium break church convention and walk up to the front during our worship assembly and surround this, this sister and her husband and to lay our hands on her and to pray together. And, I, and I'll never forget standing there, tears pouring out of my eyes as I took this picture thinking, this is what real church is. This is what it's all about right here. As I saw Lori and Don and Jerry and so many others now having tears in their own eyes. And the words of, of Romans chapter 12 just, just leaped off the page as it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep and mourn with those who weep and mourn. 
This is so much more what Jesus has in mind than, than always looking like that around the clock. I think about the Apostle Paul as he has his own Ecclesiastes moment later on in his life. He, you know, he says that, that I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Pharisee of Pharisee. I am the Apostle of Apostles as we know him as. And yet, as he looks at his empire, he doesn't see this, this grandiose empire that, that is making him better than everybody else, but rather what he sees is an empire of dirt. He says, all of those accolades and my pedigree religiously, it's nothing but rubbish. It's garbage. It is a mountain of crap that means absolutely nothing. But what I do want, Paul says, the one thing that I do want is to know Jesus Christ. And what is one of the ways that we know Jesus according to Paul? He says, through mourning, through suffering, and through hurting, knowing that, that we are hurting along with Jesus. And Jesus is hurting with us. And so for just a few minutes, I want to share an excerpt of, of my mentor as a minister. His name is Brad Nelson. And this is what his story is that has helped me understand mourning a lot more in my life. So in 2003, my sister, my little sister, she's two years younger than me. She married a high school sweetheart. His name was Rich. Uh, Rich was a friend of mine. He grew up 10 houses down the street and... I would babysit him and his uh, brother and sister in the summertime and got to know them really, really well. I was super excited when Rich married into our family. And so they were married in December of 2003, had a short honeymoon, and then Rich went to Iraq. He was a soldier, he was an engineer. He was there for one month and he was doing a prisoner transport when the Humvee that he was driving was hit by an improvised explosive and he died of massive chest injuries. And that explosion that took his life, it destroyed my family. It destroyed my faith. Everything that I had known about God, believed about God, all of a sudden was called into question in the face of this incredible, incredible pain. And one of my greatest frustrations in this time was the realization that Christians, for the most part, do not know what to do with pain. Um, as, we, as we grieved, as we mourned, people would come around us and they would say the dumbest things. It was unbelievable some of the things that people would say, and I was so disappointed with what our faith our tradition had to offer in the face of such pain because I had all these questions and all these doubts and uh, in a way this rage it felt like his death brought on this this raging river of doubt and question and it felt to me like the most faithful thing to do was to wade out into the middle of that river and to rage with it, and to voice my questions, and to voice my doubts, and, and to enter into the fullness of my pain. But everybody around me kept sending me these messages that the pain needed to be swept under the rug, that the pain needed to be avoided, that it needed to be covered over with like 
a cliche or some easy answer. And so I was really disappointed and really frustrated. I learned Jewish ritual mourning with this rabbi friend of Lawrence Kushner's who became my rabbi friend. And it was so beautiful. It was so deliberate. And I just want to explain it to you in brief. So there are four time periods in Jewish ritual mourning. And Jewish ritual mourning lasts a full year. Um, Shiva is the Hebrew word that means seven or to sit. And it refers to the seven days after someone has died where Jews will come and they will mourn with somebody by sitting with them. And that's all they do. They sit in silence. They don't offer words. They don't offer easy answers. They don't try to fix. They just sit with people in the pain. And I often think that it, this is a, one human's way to say to another human that I will let your pain disrupt me. I will not try to fix it. I will not try to sweep it under the rug, yeah. but I love you enough to be with you in it and to let it disturb and disrupt me. And I will sit in that disruption. And that is the gift of Shiva. And it is so, so beautiful. And the only thing I know from my experience is this. When you suffer, you are suddenly more open, aware, and available to the pain in other people. It's like your pain becomes a doorway or an entryway to the pain of others. I think we spend so much time wanting our wounds to heal, and we miss what the wounded healer is always trying to teach us through the cross, is that our wounds are probably some of the most powerful portals that we have to breathe new life into the world. It's through our wounds that God wants to do his most healing work in the world. Um, and so laughter is very necessary. And yet we cannot spend our entire lives on a roller coaster. If we do, it's not going to be fun anymore, is it? And we cannot spend our entire lives at the funeral parlor. Or at 9-11. You see, so often happiness and mourning is seen as an either-or. When what Jesus is, is really trying to communicate to us is that it's not either-or, but it's actually both. We need the coolness of winter just as much as we need the warmth of the summertime. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted and and that word comfort, it, it, it in many ways reminds us that, that one day he, he has promised to us that, that I will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more mourning and there will be no more pain and there will be no more tears. That's true. And yet I believe that in his kingdom, living in, in this world with his kingdom within us, I believe what Jesus is saying here as he says that you shall be comforted is that even as you mourn until the morning time comes. Nevertheless, I will wipe every tear from your eyes, even in this world. Here's the good news, Psalm 30 and verse 5, that, that weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And so as we bring this to a close this morning, and I get you guys out of here, 
I want to especially make a challenge to, to me and to all of my fellow brothers in Christ. As we live in this world where the perception is, you, if you have kids, your, your kids can't ever see you cry, or your wife is not allowed to ever see you cry because that is a measure of weakness. Which one would we rather imitate? Would we rather be John Wayne imitators? Or would we rather construct our manhood on the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ? One is on the sand, as we will read later on. The other is on a solid foundation upon the rock. And for everybody else, no matter what your, your river is that you may, may be in denial of this morning, rage with that river. Whether that, that pain is a pain of denial over a death, over the loss of a friendship. Maybe it's maybe what our river is, is that we've been looking so much at what other people are doing and where other people have sinned. How all of these others in the Christian world have gotten it all wrong, but, but we have yet to grieve over the fact that, that we too have made the Holy Spirit grieve. Regardless of what our river is, rage in that river knowing that sorrow is so much better than laughter is. This is where it's at right here. This is where we discover what this God of ours is really made of. And when we fall in love with Him all over again. When we wade into that water rather than sprinting away from it or building a bridge over it. And so embrace that pain with the power of the Holy Spirit.